If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, to chapter 4, to verse 7. If you remember what we've read so far in Jeremiah, the southern kingdom of Judah is in trouble. Why isn't the northern kingdom of Israel in trouble? They're gone. They've already been in trouble. They've already been in trouble. They're gone. And what did God say about Judah? Did they learn from Israel? They did not. What happens when God gives us a lesson and we refuse to learn it? Oh, there's consequences. You said we're held even more accountable, which means the woodshed is coming for Judah. So in verses 5 and 6, it's talking about blowing the trumpet in the land. There's an invasion coming. There's an army coming. Verse 7 tells us who? The lion has come up from his thicket. In Daniel chapters 2 and 7, we read about a lion. Which lion is that? Babylon. Who's coming to destroy Judah? Babylon. But not for 40 years. 40 in the Bible is the number of testing. Why did Israel wander for 40 years in the wilderness? God said to see whether they will be obedient to me or not. So God has said for your sinfulness, for your pride, for your arrogance, for your immorality, your idolatry, I'm going to destroy you. And it gives them 40 years to take it to heart or not. Did they? Oh, no, unfortunately not. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. To a lesson I wish many of our brothers in the traditional church would learn. 1 Kings chapter 13. There was a prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah. That God sent up to the northern kingdom to King Jeroboam. Right after the kingdom split. To tell Jeroboam as he's sacrificing at a pagan altar that he's doing wrong. And when he pointed at the prophet and said kill him what happened to his arm? It shriveled up. And the king said oops sorry about that would you please ask God to put it back? And he did. And then the prophet, as he's heading back home, after telling us that God told him he cannot stay in that land, he cannot eat there, he cannot go back that way, runs across a false prophet who says, hey, I'm also a prophet from God. God told me to bring you home and feed you. Exactly what the prophet has just told us, God forbid him from doing. So that prophet from Judah believed, well, clearly God changed his mind. God changed his commandment. And here we have in chapter 13 of 1 Kings, verses 24 to 28, what happened. Verse 24, when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road, and the lion standing by the corpse. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. That's the false prophet. 
Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who is disobedient to the word of the Lord. Can you, can you see the chutzpah? He's the one who told him to break the, the commandment of God. He says, oh, he shouldn't have been disobedient. Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son saying, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled it. Then they went and found his corpse thrown on the road and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse nor torn the donkey. Why do we come here? What's the point? God used the lion for what purpose? For judgment. What is the symbol of Babylon? The lion. In Daniel chapter 7, it's the winged lion, in fact. So let us go back to Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 7. We only read the first clause. No pun intended. The lion has come up from his thicket. What does a thicket represent? The sins of the world. So Babylon is not a good godly nation coming to bring judgment. They're a very wicked nation. But is that not what God said? Go to back to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, verse 36. Deuteronomy 28, verse 36. The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. Which meant they're not going to be taken captive by a godly nation to nurture them in the ways of the Lord. They're going to be taken captive by a pagan nation. If they keep thinking those pagan gods are going to be some great blessing, let them go find out. But you know there's more. What's another name for Babylon? One is the plain of Shinar, but another is the Chaldees. Where was Abraham called out of the Ur of the Chaldees to come out of pagan idolatry and come over to worship the true and living God? And God is telling Judah, if you haven't learned yet, I'm going to take you right back there where Abraham came from. And you'll see what Abraham left behind. Gods of wood and stone and metal to come worship the true and living God who would be always a blessing to you, so long as what? So long as you're obedient. So back to Jeremiah 4, 7. The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of nations is on his way. The destroyer of nations, we're talking about Babylon. We're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Why is he called the destroyer of nations? Didn't he just whip up on little Judah? No, he took the entire known world captive. He defeated every nation, right? Made them into a great empire. That's why he's called the destroyer of nations. And unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar is going to look at Israel and Judah like any other nation. Who's the, the pagan gods of the other nations couldn't withstand his army. Neither can Judah and their petty little god. Little does he know, right? That is that God permits it. But after seven years of eating grass, he'll learn. The picture of the lion in First Kings. You know, he killed a man, but 
They killed the man, but not the donkey. So it's like that, that line, if it pictures judgment, God allows judgment to happen where he says it's going to happen. God allows judgment to happen where he says it's going to happen. He killed the man, but not the donkey. What did the donkey done wrong? Nothing. Did God pour out his judgment on that donkey? No. What did the prophet done wrong? He disobeyed God by what? Believing that God would break his word. That God would change his mind. That God would be a liar. I'm not a man that I should lie, nor the son of man that I should change my mind. That sounds a lot like it's a quote from the book of Numbers, huh? Mm-hmm. Chapter 23. But you know, a big insult, too, if you look at that first Kings. A big insult, too, in that first Kings scripture. The, the man from Judah got a word from the Lord. The man from Judah got the word directly from the Lord. And the prophet that was a false prophet said, an angel told me. So he allowed someone else to say that God's word is not so. Does Peter know this in Acts chapter 10? When there's a voice from heaven that says, rise, Peter, kill me. Peter says, "Uh uh-uh, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. In addition to 1 Kings 13, there's also what? Deuteronomy 13. That whenever you've got a prophet that says, don't do what God said, do this other thing anyway, what are we supposed to do? Run. Because Deuteronomy 13 says, if God allows this false prophet to do a wonder or a miracle or a sign, is to see, it's a test to see, will you obey me or not? Do you love me with your whole heart or not? Back to Jeremiah 4, 7. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. What does desolate mean? Without inhabitant. Does Judah and Jerusalem itself eventually become without inhabitant, period? Yes, not a single person left alive. Do you think maybe God means it when he says something? Do you think if God says when you eat an unclean animal... It makes you an abomination in his sight. Do you think he actually means that? Yes, Yes, he does. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. Now let's go to 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20. That's 1 Kings chapter 20, starting in verse 35. 1 Kings chapter 20, starting in verse 35, it reads, Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets. Do you know what they mean by the sons of the prophets? Yeah, prophets like Elijah and the others had schools where they trained younger men to be prophets as well. The other one was Elisha. I was just getting tongue-tied. Certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor, by the word of the Lord, strike me, please. Said to his neighbor, by the word of the Lord, which means what? God told me to. You better do it. Strike me. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, 
Surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. You know what happens then? He strikes him. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. What's the point? No. When God gives a commandment, he expects it to be followed. The first man, he said, the Lord said, strike me, please. The man refused to strike him. Why? Because he thought, surely God wouldn't do that. Surely I know better. I wouldn't do something like that. Which comes down to, who's the Lord to tell me what I can and can't do? You think you're smarter than God is. It's not what I want to do, therefore I'm not going to do it. Wayne, yes, ma'am. How does the, by the word of the Lord come about? Because if somebody just says, strike me, is he, going, is he saying, strike me by the word of the Lord? Or how does he say that, that he knows what he really said? It doesn't tell us. You know, they got just a few words to describe what happened. And the point was, it was the word of the Lord. And he said, strike me, please. And the man said, ain't doing it. Um, how many times do we read something in scripture and go, no, I don't want to do that. I think I'll do something else. And, of course, we had to go look at this one because, again, it's a lion who comes in, kills the man. Same lion. Maybe, maybe. Let's go to Hosea chapter 5. Not a fat lion. Remember, he didn't eat the man or the donkey. <laughs> Hosea. Hosea means salvation. It's from the same root as Yeshua. Hosea chapter 5. In today's time, these so-called prophets. If they say, by the word of the Lord, strike me, I would be like, I don't know. Yeah, if they said, by the word of the Lord, strike me, you go, well, I don't know, because there's so many false prophets in the world today. You know, and that scripture in John, the first John that says, you know, test the spirits to see whether they're from God, you know, that, you know, I can see where that guy would be like. Yeah, first time he said, test the spirits. Well, the way we can tell the spirits is give him a good right hook. Yes, <laughs> if I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, if you give him a good right hook and the lion doesn't eat you, you did right. Hosea chapter 5, verse 14. You've seen these again and again. God describes the captivities of Assyria and Babylon, taking first the northern kingdom to Assyria, then the southern kingdom to, of Judah to Babylon, as like a lion. Verse 14. For I'll be like a lion to Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom going to the Assyrian captivity in 722 BCE. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, that's Babylon. He uses these terms of like a lion because of all these scriptures that came before where God used lions as instruments of his judgment. Because I don't know if you or I would be afraid of a house cat if God sent it after us. But a lion, we're going to be a little afraid, right? Of course, I can't wait to get to heaven and get one for a pet. But we also need to look at Daniel chapter 7. 
Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 tells us in no uncertain terms that that lion that God's talking about in Jeremiah is Babylon. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main fact. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven. What do the four winds of heaven represent? War, right? All directions. War from all directions. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The great sea, the Mediterranean, talks about the Gentile world. The Gentiles are going to come and attack Israel. And four great bees came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. Who is this lion? Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom of Babylon. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 4. Isn't it uh, somewhere Yeshua referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah? Yes. The tribal standard of Judah was the lion. So it just reminds us that he descends from the tribe of Judah. He shouldn't have. He should have been from the tribe of Reuben. Remember, Reuben lost his status, so did Simeon, and so did Levi, and Judah was fourth in line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, Judah. Yeah. Yeah, I know you guys have all seen Tool Time. Okay. Verse eight, Jeremiah four eight. For this, for what? For this, clothe yourself with sackcloth and lament and wail. That's coming captivity unless they want. Unless they repent first. They could clothe themselves with sackcloth and lament and wail over their sins and cry to God for repentance. If they don't, then they're going to wail in sackcloth and ashes when they get into captivity. So they're going to lament and wail one way or the other. Would they like to do it in their land or as captives in a foreign land? And see the word for? Because the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. But the beauty of that sentence is it doesn't say for the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back from us. Has not means not yet. Why hasn't it? Because they haven't repented yet. What did Israel keep wanting from the Lord? They wanted forgiveness without repentance. They wanted restoration. They wanted blessing without repentance. How well did that go over for them? Doesn't go over well for anybody. 
I'm sorry, that's when you make God your genie in a bottle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just can't help but think that non-Messianic rabbi that I heard just a couple months ago now uh, explaining to his synagogue the origins of Christianity and said Israel throughout our history we have sinned and we've turned away from God and God has punished us until we repented. So 2,000 years ago here comes a bunch of mainly Gentiles telling us that we can have God's forgiveness and blessing without repentance. And that's the origin of Christianity. That's his view. That's not the way it was. But that's the way he viewed it. Well, that's what happened with... I'm sorry. That's what happened with false Christianity, which... You, you know, you keep saying those little articles from some of the conventions they had. That wasn't Christianity. That was the church. Yeah. I think that back when Barack Obama was sitting in the White House, he made that comment that America was not a Christian nation. Anymore. You know. Yeah. I hear you. But never forget, as we've covered over here a couple times recently, the word Christian only appears three times in the whole Bible. And is by outsiders in a derogatory manner. What do they refer to themselves as 60 times in the New Testament? Saints. So when we went away from the word saint, because those are the ones who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua, and we don't want to be keeping commandments anymore, we need another term. Mm. I believe saints today defined as... That's a Catholic definition, yeah. Yeah. But that's not the biblical definition. What is it? Revelation 14, 12. Let's turn and look. Revelation 14, 12. If you want to see it again, it's also in Revelation 12, 17. But we'll go to 14, 12. Did you? Uh, I had never thought about it. <laughs> Revelation wouldn't have been the title in Hebrew. What's the first few words of Revelation? That would tell us what it would have been called. It begins the Revelation. Okay, I'll have to look. Okay, but Revelation fourteen twelve. Here's the patience of the saints. Hagios. That word hagios is related to the word sanctification, right? Mm-hmm. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. And if you look at traditional church doctrine, at their theologies, this does not fit within the definition of Christianity in the, in the seminaries. For the most part. I'm sorry, let's I digress. You haven't seen that on the wall of any Sunday school class. I have not. So in back to Jude, uh, Jeremiah 4 8, before you get all tongue-tied. I get excited. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. The fierce anger. It's used in the book of Jeremiah eight times, this phrase. Eight times. Do you think God is unhappy with Judah? 
God isn't happy. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 25, verse 4. Uh, what, what is the period of history when this is written? Uh, Jeremiah is written about 600 BCE, give or take. Just before the Babylonian captivity. Yes, it starts in the, at the reign of Joash, right before the Babylonian captivity. Do you have your list of kings and prophets? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to pull mine out here because I have the dates written there. Okay. His ministry began in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. Josiah began reigning in the year 640. So subtract 13 from that, about 627 is when he starts his ministry. Numbers chapter 25 verse 4. This is the first instance I can think of in the scripture where that phrase fierce anger is used. And notice where it is. It's at Baal Peor. Numbers chapter 25 verse 4. At Baal Peor, Balaam persuaded Balak, hey, the Lord won't let me curse the children of Israel, so let me tell you how to do it. Bring a bunch of pagan prostitutes and their pagan idols and tell the children of Israel that if they'll eat the pig from the sacrifice, they can play with the prostitutes. And that'll get them in trouble with God and he will curse them. So in chapter 25, verse 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Let's back up to verse 3 so we know why he says it. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. How were they joined to Baal of Peor? They ate from the sacrifice. They ate the food sacrificed to idols. That joins you to that idol. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Are they going to go hang all the people? No, all the guilty people. Those who participated in the idolatry and the immorality. Those who had the ham sandwich are to die. But Isaiah 66 says, when the Lord returns, all those eating that unclean food, they're going to die. Why? Leviticus 11 says, what does it do to you when you eat the unclean foods? It makes you abominable in the eyes of God. Is that the way you want God to see you? Is that an abomination? No. Let's go then to Numbers chapter 32. Remember, God's having Israel wander in the wilderness these 40 years to test them. Will they follow me? Will they obey me? And here you got thousands of people going up and eating the piggy and playing with the girls. Same is with the foods which God said you should not partake. 
Yeah. But yet, if we put it out there, it's poison to your soul. Yep. They want to partake of it even more so. And I yep. don't grasp the concept. If I know something's wrong, I'm running the other direction. Let me help explain it best I can. In the scriptures, God says three of the most important scriptures to him are Shabbat, don't eat unclean foods, and keep my feasts and festivals. So in the fourth century, the Catholic Church said, we hate Jews so much that anything they do, even though God told them to do it, we're not going to do it like them. It was anti-Semitism. And you'd like to say, well, the church today, they're not anti-Semitic. Oh, but many of them are. Not all. Not all, but many of them are. In this city of Jasper and up in Elijah, we have churches that push the BDS movement, which is anti-Israel. But let's not go there. Numbers 32. So they do it because of hatred for the Jews. And they think God likes the fact that they hate Jews. Because they're not reading the Bible. How many denominations out there say don't read the Old Testament? It's not for you. You don't need to know. So, yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. The more you check ingredients, the more you don't eat. I agree. Numbers 32, starting in verse 13. I don't mean to get on a soapbox. I just worry so much about people out there who simply, they don't know any better. Is that a defense come judgment day? Is You didn't expect me to actually read the Bible, did you, God? Okay. Numbers 32, verses 13 to 15. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel. He made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. What's he so mad about? He told them to go up and conquer the land. They said, no, we're, can't, we're not going. You can't make us because you can't help us take the land. Oh, come on. Breaks my heart. And look, you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, this is what causes his fierce anger to arise. If you, arise, if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. What does God say happens if you turn away from following him? You have 
forsaken him or forgotten him, depending upon which of the two scriptures you're focusing on at the time. Now that, that word fierce. That word fierce. It's very descriptive. It's very descriptive in it's Hebrew. Not just, you know, fierce doesn't give it the connotation. It, it has to do with kindling fire. It has to do with kindling fire. It is not a... I'm a little perturbed. If you look at the Hebrew, it uses the word burning. If you look at the Hebrew, it actually uses the word burning. And what is burning a picture of? Judgment. This is anger that causes God's judgment to be poured out upon the people. You're absolutely right. And you know, that ties to Isaiah 65, where he talks about these people are a smoke in my nostrils. Yep. Because they're just because of his fierce anger, it's showing that like you're just the more you disobey me, the more you're just stoking the fire. He said in Isaiah 65, it reminds him of the the statements that the, the their sin is like smoke in God's nostrils. The word for anger in Hebrew is the word off, which means nose. It's very descriptive. It's descriptive of like a stallion in the westerns who's about to stomp someone to China. That's the picture. The flaring nostrils, the the burning in the eyes. Yeah, okay. You're absolutely right. Go to Isaiah chapter 13. That also shows the nature of God, you know, going back to Exodus 3. Going back to Exodus 3. But God said, a share. He said, a yeah, a share, a yeah. He said, if you disobey me, you're just stoking the fire. Yeah. God's only got two classifications of people in Isaiah 66. My servants and my enemies. When you're stoking the fire, you're making yourself God's enemy. And no one who is the enemy of God would tell us come judgment day that God is just full of love. He's full of love to his children, to his servants, to those who love him. I sure won't. So let's go to Isaiah 13, verse 9. And we're going to have to get to 65 and 66 before we go, because you brought them up. 13, 9. I know, so hard. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9. In verse 6, it said, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. What does wail mean? Cry bitterly. But verse 8 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. Wait a minute. I, I don't see the part where it says, I will consume my children in my wrath. Well, that's not who the cruel wrath is for. The fierce anger is for whom? It's sinners from it. Look at verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. What's another word for iniquity? Lawlessness, the same thing you see in Matthew 7, 23. Where were we? Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9. We touched verse 6. 
then went to verse 9, then touched verse 11. Oh, Isaiah chapter 13. Just out of curiosity, what book would you like to be in? I was in Jeremiah. I'm like, that doesn't say that, but it's really good. <laughs> yeah, okay. And the very next place I wanted to go is Isaiah 13, 13. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place. In the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. God is not just a little miffed when he's shaking the heavens and the earth and the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, right? What makes God so angry? Well, let's go look at Isaiah 65 and 66. Isaiah 13 calls his enemies sinners, one and the same. What's a sinner? One who disobeys the commandments of God. Give me a verse. 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. Matthew 7, 23. What happens to those who practice lawlessness? Do they lose a few rewards in heaven? He says, I never knew you depart from me. You never want to hear those words from the Lord. Isaiah 65, verse 2. I have stretched out my hands all day long. You're not there yet. Let me give you a chance to get there. Isaiah 65, verse 2. Isaiah 65, verse 2. Yep, Isaiah is the book right before Jeremiah. She's got that down now. Okay. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. What does rebellious mean? Stiff neck. They refuse to repent. Who walk in a way that is what? Not good. That's putting it mildly. According to their own thoughts, meaning what? They say, I will not do it God's way. I will do it my way, and he will just have to accept me as I am. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. There's that word anger. There's the flaring nostrils. There's the horse ready to stomp you to China. Who sacrifice in gardens. What's wrong with that? That's idolatry. And burn incense on altars of brick. That's to the pagan gods. Who sit among the graves. What's wrong with that? We like dead people. No. That's unclean. Uncleanness is an offense to God. It's smoke in his nostrils. And spend the night in the tombs. Who eats swine's flesh? What's a swine? They pig. And the broth of abominable things. So it's not just pigs is in their vessels who say keep to yourself do not come near me for I am holier than you these are smoke in my nostrils a fire that burns all the day behold it's written before me I will not keep silence but will repay oh, oh since we're here and people hate me already anyway 
Let's look at verse 11. I got to keep stoking the fire. Verse 11. But if you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for Mani. The celebration of Gad and Mani is that celebration of December 25th that the church incorporated now and calls it Christmas. It's the feast of Gad and Mani. Is the feast of the birth of Tammuz, the sun god. Worshipper god. Um, yeah. Yep. Chapter 66. Verses 14 to 17. This is where we see clearly that God only has two categories. Everywhere you look, he's only got two categories. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. Here's the first, the hand of the Lord, that's his benefit, his protection, his blessing, shall be known to his servants. And his indignation, that's the wrath being poured out to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire. What is fire picture? Judgment. And with his chariots like a whirlwind, meaning it cannot be stopped. It's like a tent in the wilderness before a tornado. To render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge whom? All flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. This is his return. Those who sanctify themselves to purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst. Idolatry. Eating swine's flesh and the abomination of the mouth shall be consumed together, says the Lord. So when the Lord returns, is he going to say, hey, can I have a bite of that ham sandwich? Or is he going to strike down the one eating it? Go to Lamentations. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. So it comes right after Jeremiah. It's where he really pours his heart out. And his heart just breaks. Lamentations chapter 1. Verse 12. At least three times in Lamentations he's going to refer to this fierce anger. First is Lamentations 1.12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. Jeremiah has to observe as God pours out his fierce anger on Judah and Jerusalem in particular. And can you see how it's tearing his heart out to see it? He has been through the reign of three to four kings already. Been telling them to repent. That they can keep this from happening. And they say, no, we will not repent. God will not harm us. We're going to see in a few minutes, he's going to tell us why they won't repent. Let me give you a hint. False prophets. Okay. <laughs> Lamentations chapter 2 verse 3. 
He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. Talking about the kings, the rulers, the leaders. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. That is, he didn't keep the enemy from coming. He allowed him to come. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around. Notice it doesn't say he has blazed against Israel like a flaming fire, but against Jacob. Jacob refers to unrepentant Israel. Those who refuse to bow their hearts and knees. Lamentations chapter 4. Verse 11. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He killed the fire in Zion and has devoured its foundations. When God was done pouring out his fury on Jerusalem, there was nothing left. Not a soul. All destroyed. Let's go to Jonah. Jonah. Jonah means dove. Jonah dove. D-O-V-E. Dove. Why was there fierce anger in the book of Jonah? Come on, Jonah. Come on. Come on, girl. It's right there at Amos. Come on, I know it is. After Obadiah. Mm -hmm. Obadiah is just a page. Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. You need those little things cut on the edges of your paper. Yeah. Obadiah served in the court of Ahab and Jezebel. Yes, he did. <laughs> Joel, Jonah chapter 3, verse 9. We may as well start in verse 4 for context. And Jonah, parenthetical, after playing with the fish for three days and three nights, began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Forty is the number of what? Testing. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them, even from the king's house and down. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way. And from the violence that is in his hands, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? 
Where do you think the king got the idea that repentance might just cause God not to bring the judgment at that point in time? Yeah, I'd say Jonah. Do you think, potentially, I mean, put your mind back there. Here comes a guy who has been in digestive juices in a huge fishes. Are you suggesting he stunk? (laughs) No, I'm suggesting that he was probably bleached white. Probably. I suspect he smelled a fish. And he comes walking in proclaiming this. That probably got their attention like a ghost walking into town. Probably. But historians tell us something else happened that the Bible doesn't describe. Do you remember a few years ago when we had that solar eclipse that came across the United States going through all those cities by the name of Salem? They say that a huge solar eclipse had gone like that across the city of Nineveh, right through the heart of it, just before Jonah showed up. And that they interpreted that as a sign that great destruction was about to come. Then here comes Jonah preaching great destruction. God did get their attention, yep. Zephaniah, chapter 2. Yeah, we don't go to Zephaniah very often, but that's just a few pages forward from Jonah. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Did God spare Nineveh? He did for that generation, yep. Until they forgot about the repentance and turned away from God, and then they got his fierce anger. Yep. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He's prophesying in the days of Josiah. Who else is prophesying in the days of Josiah that we're studying right now? Jeremiah. So these are contemporaries. Zephaniah 2, 1 to 3 says, Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. That word undesirable means what? Shameless. Not ashamed at all of their sins. Don't care who knows it. Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, meaning repent before this comes, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, and before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Oh, look at that. The destruction of Judah and Jerusalem foreshadows events of the day of the Lord. Hmm. Verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. What's the word meek there mean? Humble, those who will humble themselves before the Lord. Who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Yom HaKisei is one of the terms for which of the appointed times. What's that? Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets. Yom HaKisei means the day of our hiding or concealing that is in heaven before the judgment falls. So this tells us that judgment is going to fall upon Judah, period. But there are individuals who can repent and not have to suffer the judgment. 
Then Zephaniah 3.8, one of my favorite verses that I never talk about. We'll have to read 8 and 9 so that you'll see why. Zephaniah 3.8 just wanders all over the place, it seems. It says, therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. See, this is Armageddon. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Verse 8 is the only verse in the entire Bible that has all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, including the five sophit, or final forms. So what do you suppose that pure language is in verse 9 that we're going to speak in the kingdom? Hebrew. That's why we may as well start learning it now. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4 up to verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord. In what day? The day of the Lord. So again is he telling us that this judgment falling upon Judah and Jerusalem foreshadows in times events. It's almost like Ecclesiastes which says what? What's happened before will happen again. It says that the heart of the king shall perish, which means what? He's going to be terribly afraid. And the heart of the princes, meaning not his sons, but the other leaders of the nation. The priest shall be astonished, and the prophets shall wonder. So my question, verse 9, is when does this happen? Happens twice. Once when Babylon invades which was 2,600 years ago, and again in the tribulation period. Are there other dual fulfillment prophecies in the scriptures that have an ancient fulfillment in the long term? Sure, this is just another one. Verse 10 fits right in with our study in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 10 says, Then I said... I here is the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is heard from the Lord and the message is tearing his heart apart. And I said, ah, Lord God. Is it really Lord God? No, it's really my Lord, the Lord. My Lord, the Lord. You can tell that by looking at the way the first Lord is spelled. See, it's a capital L and then small letters O-R-D. That's from the Hebrew word Adonai. And the word God here where they put the capital letters after the G, the small caps, that's our tetragrammaton. So then I said, my Lord, the Lord. He's taken the Lord and saying, you're my Lord, my personal Surely you have greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. Whoa, do you want to be standing next to Jeremiah when he says this? 
He says, Lord, you misled the people, saying, you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. Why does he think the Lord has told the people they will have peace? It's in the name Jerusalem, but Jeremiah is prophesying, but he's not alone. How many false prophets are prophesying at the same time? There's hundreds. Saying, we received a message from the Lord that we're going to have peace. There's not going to be an invasion. There's nothing like that coming. Would it be looked at also like, you know, the people are hearing all these prophets. Uh, Jeremiah's talk against what the false prophets are saying, but they're choosing to listen to the false prophets. Yeah. And in, in similar term, terms, concept, where in you know, Revelation, that it says they'll be given over the great delusion. Yeah. Those who turn away and don't listen. Yeah. But the point is, does God lie? No. No, God does not lie. Not my God. Yeah. So <laughs> Jeremiah hopes that the false prophets are true, but he can tell it's not. Let's look at First Thessalonians chapter five, verse three. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse three. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So when the Lord says judgment is coming, and the people say, oh no, it's not. Paul says, oh, stand back. Mm, stand back, it's coming. And remember Deuteronomy 13. Let's turn back there. We've mentioned it a couple times today. We may as well turn and look. Deuteronomy, what, Deuteronomy 13. Yep, yep, can be days. Yep. Not just an instantaneous, you know, birth and yeah. That's where we're at right now. People are so numb to, to us saying he's coming, that he's on his way, it's here, repent, that they no longer hear us because they have numbed themselves out. Yeah, that's Second Peter chapter 3, isn't it? Pardon me? That's Second Peter chapter 3, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And, you know, they give women today, uh, what is it called, epidural. Or, you know, things like that to numb the birth pains. Yeah. Well, that's what's happened to us today. Satan has all but numbed the birth pains. People don't see the earth weighing and bowing back and forth with the pain yep. of the revelation being revealed. Yeah. So the bottom line of what Jeremiah is saying to God is, why didn't you stop the false prophets? Why did you let them mislead the people? Hawaii in the New Testament does Messiah, Peter, Paul, James, and John, and, and everybody else, why don't they warn us about the false teachers? They, did. they do, over and over again, but we won't listen. But people want to hear that our false prophets wouldn't have a business. Yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to have to look at that one in a few minutes, too. They want their ears tickled. That's right, they don't want to hear the truth. 
So Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5, it, it looks at the question of why doesn't God stop the mouths of the false prophets? Why does he let them spread their lies? Deuteronomy 13, verse 1, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and it gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. What is that word for serve, Daniel? Avad, right? It means to do what they tell you to do. To obey someone or something other than God. To follow their commandments. That's to do what they tell you to do instead of God. And most of the time, that's the reason they serve them is because they don't have many commandments. <laughs> yeah, they like the commandments. Go ye and play with the prostitutes. And people go, oh, yes, sir. No. That's the false gods. That's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's usually the only commandment. Yeah. Yeah. So verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God. That's where Halakha comes from, the way we walk. And fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. So the false prophets are saying, you don't have to repent. God is going to bless you anyway. God will protect you. God will defend you. God will pour out his blessing on you because he loves you. You don't have to repent. Do you hear that anywhere on the YouTube today? Yeah, let's not mention Andy Stanley in particular, but well, okay. That's what was happening in Jeremiah's day. Is the prophets were saying, you don't have to repent. We're the descendants of Abraham. God loves us. He would never do anything to harm us. Stop listening to Jeremiah. You don't need to repent. I wish there was a way, I know wishing is not a correct word, that we could plug the ears of those who are not hearing the truth just muffle out all the sounds from the world to where they could just once hear that thundering from the mountain of God's yeah. feet. And that's what shut Jeremiah is saying to God. Why can't you shut the mouths of the false prophets so that people won't be misled? Yes, Daniel? I was going to say, you know, if people just use a little deductive reasoning. If people just use a little deductive reasoning. You know, if these prophets, so-called, or whatever, modern-day preacher, If these so-called prophets or preachers or whatever... If, you, if they're telling you not to repent, that automatically means that you remain a sinner, right? Right. And yeah. Then, and then what did we read in Isaiah 13? What did we read in Isaiah 13? If you're a sinner, you are the one that's going to be received. If you are a sinner, you're the one that's going to receive the fierce anger of the Lord. But yet, how many times have you heard a preacher say, if you repent, that means you have no faith in God? I've never heard that, but I... I have, many times. You need to have faith that God will... Save you and deliver you anyway. And then that's how these you know, people can get around it too by saying repentance, that's a work. And they say repentance is a work. If you repent, you're trying to earn your salvation. 
repent so you, just means to turn from your sin. I mean, repent just means to turn from your sin. Change stop, your actions. Stop sinning. <laughs> stop sinning. Or Ephesians 4.17 says, Stop walking like the rest of the Gentiles walk. So, I mean, if we, I mean God's not going to knock you in the head with a hammer and make you stop sinning. God will not hit you in a hammer in the head and make you stop sinning. God gives us a choice. I said before you today, life and death, choose life, but then he lets us choose. He didn't say, I'm going to make you choose life. Yeah. I've had a lot of people say, well, well, it's God's fault. He should have made me choose. Well, God doesn't do that. You hear that a lot. Is that what the scripture says? She said, she said on the way home, she just drove back, so she had a lot of time to listen. She was listening to a preacher on the radio who said, repent means just change your mind about who Jesus is. It doesn't mean stop sinning. Is that what our scriptures say? No, but that's doctrine. If you... If you follow a denomination who says that doctrine takes precedence over scripture, then you need to find a new place to worship. Yeah. That was what the scribes and Pharisees said, is that our doctrine takes precedence over the scriptures. That's what the Catholic Church did in the 4th century, and say our doctrine takes precedence over the scriptures. What takes precedence over the scriptures? Nothing. Nothing. If you hear a voice from heaven tonight as you're in your bed that says, I have decided that adultery is a good thing, that is not God. If you hear a voice that says, your neighbor has a nice car, go steal it, that's not God. Okay. So verse 10 of Jeremiah 4. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, You shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. He's saying, You should have stopped the false prophets from preaching. Does God do that? No. God tells you that the false teachers are coming and tells you not to listen, but you've got to decide. But if you're not well grounded, ooh, you're starting to sound like Second Peter three. <laughs> but if you're not well grounded in the scriptures, then those false prophets are just going to lead you. The false prophets can lead you straight to the lake of fire. Tomorrow we may look at a word in Matthew chapter seven. The narrow way. It's not actually the word narrow, is it? Straight. It's not straight either. Yeah, we'll find out. Mm. I was a little surprised. Verse 11. Yeah, you have to wait. <laughs> Got to give you a reason to come back tomorrow. What time is it? Not time to go yet. Clock on the wall isn't working. So, okay, verse 11. At that time, oh, another reference to the end times. Letting us know again, we're talking about dual fulfillments here. 
At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem. A dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people. Not to fan or to cleanse. What kind of wind are we talking about here? Talking about the winds of war, the shirakos, the hot winds that come in. And it's a picture of Babylon coming in to destroy ancient Jerusalem. And about in the tribulation period, how the nations of the world are going to come in three different battles or wars. Do you realize in biblical Hebrew, battle and war is the same word? So there are people who say there's only one war in the tribulation period that has three battles. Well, that's the same thing as three wars. It's the same word. But what's the first battle that takes place? The Psalm 83 war. The Muslim nations that share a border with Israel are going to attack. And who's going to prevail? The Israeli Defense Forces. Because it says they won't ever attack them again. Yeah. So we have people out there teaching that says, yeah, it already happened. And he says, we have complete peace with all our neighbors. As rockets are coming from the north, south, the east, and the west. I don't know. But when... What's that? Yeah, we're still in Jeremiah talking about battle and war, things that are coming. We don't see the word here, milchama, which is battle or war. Just talking about the three battles are going to take place at that time, which is in the tribulation period. So, and at the end of the Psalm 83 war, Israel pushes out its borders where it covers what's now Libya and Syria and Jordan. That all becomes part of Israeli territory. And then you have the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then at the end you have the battle of Armageddon. So these winds that are blowing in are winds of war. And when you see that phrase at that time, just write in your notes. Think of Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. Which says at that time Michael is going to stand up and it's time for war in heaven. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Let's go look. Deuteronomy 12, 1. Let's make sure I don't have the quote wrong. Daniel 12, 1. Daniel 12, 1. At that time, Michael, Michael, who is like God, shall stand up. The great prince, he's an archangel, who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, that is the book of life. So when does Israel come to the Lord on Moss? Right there in the tribulation period. And that's why so many people preach that Israel has to go through the tribulation. They flip that on its head, though. Christian Israelis or believe, believing Jews won't go through the tribulation. I agree with you. But they, they preach that they will. Yeah. It's, it's 
Yep, I went to a prophecy conference at a Baptist church in Prattville, Alabama. And one of the first words that the speaker had to say was that when the trumpet blows, everyone who's saved is going to get caught up to heaven unless they were born Jewish, in which case they can't go. They got to stay and go through God's wrath. And I said, I'm out of here. That was enough for me. That is anti-Semitism in its fullest form. Back to Jeremiah 4, verse 12. A wind too strong for these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. So when Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem and Judah, they control the entire known world. Every nation goes into captivity except Babylon because they're in charge. But then what happens in Daniel chapter 5? When God writes on the wall, Mene, Mene, take all you farsen. Babylon falls that night to Medo-Persia. Now Medo-Persia controls the world. And Babylon undergoes its captivity. And then every nation is in captivity except for Medo-Persia. We're going to read about that in Jeremiah. God's going to tell us it's coming. So the point is, the nations that bring war against Israel are eventually going to suffer God's judgment for it. Oh, oh, oh. Verse 13, that's about Belagog and Magog. How about that? Verse 13, Behold, he shall come up like clouds, and his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are plundered. Yes, that's about Babylon and its invasion. But let's also go to Ezekiel chapter 38 and see if we read words like this. Ezekiel 38 takes place, in my opinion, about three years into the tribulation period. When we see it happen from our perches in heaven, we will get together and go, you were close? Or, boy, you didn't even get that one close. But there are those who teach that the battle of Gog and Magog will take place before the tribulation starts. That is not possible. Because at the battle of Gog and Magog, all Israel gets saved. If all Israel gets saved at the battle of Gog and Magog before the rapture and resurrection, then they're all gone. And that's not the way the scripture reads. But let's start in chapter 38 of Ezekiel, verse 1 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. Son of man, set your face against Gog. That's a person. Of the land of Magog, that's a land. The prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, just think of Turkey and go all the way north to Russia. And say, thus says the Lord God. Is it the Lord God or is it my Lord, the Lord? Look at the letters. My Lord, the Lord. Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. How do you want to be the one where the Lord says, I'm against you? Oh, no, no, that's not good. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out. 
with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, what's Persia today? Iran. Ethiopia, that's actually more Cush than Ethiopia. What's that Hebrew word? Cush. And Libya, that's the Hebrew word put, that's Libya today. Just think of Moammar Gaddafi's old kingdom. Are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. So these are all Muslim nations, essentially, that did not fall in the Psalm 83 war because they weren't involved. They did not share a border with Israel. Gomer, Gomer is western Turkey across to Germany, that area. And all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north. If you start in Jerusalem and go north, where do you go? Moscow. All the way to Moscow. Yeah. And all its troops, many people with you, prepare yourself and be ready. You and all your companies that are gathered about you and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword... That is, Israel must be at least partially restored as a nation. And they are. And gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, and they are, which had long been desolate. Yes, they were. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. After the Psalm 83 war, and all those nations that shared a border with Israel have been defeated to arise no more, they're going to feel pretty safe, aren't they? No more rockets from Gaza. No more from Hezbollah and Libya. Or Lebanon, not Libya. No more United Nonsense. Yeah, but yeah they're still here. <laughs> and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm. Ooh, that's starting to sound like Jeremiah, isn't it? You'll ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Oh my. There are too many coming for the Israeli defense forces. They can't handle it. <coughs> Israel's going to call on the United States, so what are we going to do? We're going to do like Egypt did all throughout the old kingdom and say, oh, no, uh-uh, can't do it. And thus says the Lord God, again, it's my Lord, the Lord. On that day, it well, what day? Day of the Lord. See, it's not before the day of the Lord, it's in the day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. But notice coming like a storm, coming like a cloud. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 13. Behold, it shall come up like clouds and his chariots like a whirlwind. So it will happen again in the day of the Lord. Verse 14. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. What's that mean? Please repent so that what? So that you do not have to be destroyed. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? This made me think of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't know if it does to you or not, but I bet it will in a few minutes. 
Second Corinthians chapter seven. Jeremiah is trying to tell them, look at the destruction, the misery, the death that's coming. Does that make one sorrowful? Supposed to, right? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow, if you really recognize your sin and repent from it, godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So the prophet Jeremiah is trying to get them to realize that if they will not repent, they will be destroyed. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 4, we're up to verse 15. For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims affliction from Mount Ephraim. The only thing we need to know from that is which direction is Dan and Ephraim? North. So the destruction will come from the north. With Babylon, they come from the north. In the battle of Gog and Magog, they come from the north. Verse 16, make mention to the nations. Which nations? All of them. Yes, proclaim against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and raise their voice against the cities of Judah. So don't just warn Jerusalem. Warn all the nations that Babylon's coming if they don't repent. Do you think the nations lined up to sign up to the Lord to repent? And No, they didn't. Does that remind you of what Hezekiah told Isaiah, when Hezekiah showed all the envoys from Babylon. Oh boy. All the, all the good and stuff, yeah. Where did they come from? And Hezekiah said they come from a far country. Right. So it's kind of like that's being brought back to the table because Isaiah said everything that they saw, they're going to capture. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of Take me back to that yeah. So in the book of Isaiah, Hezekiah is deathly sick. And God grants him 15 more years, right? And he even changed the position of the sun, which changed our years from 360 days to 365 and a quarter, but that's just an aside. And when he was healed and representatives from Babylon came, he showed him all his great treasures. Not all that the Lord had done. Not all that the Lord had gathered together, but see what I have. And Isaiah said, where did these guys come from? Oh, long, long, long way away. Were they really that far away? Not that far. He made it stand still once. Yeah, and then, uh, and then, who was? Who, I can't remember. Where he's talking about? Shall I send a shadow back? That's Hezekiah. Yeah. Border back. And Hezekiah said, "Hey, anybody can make the sun go down. Let's see it go back." Yeah. Okay, back to Jeremiah. 
Chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. Like keepers of a field, they are against her all around because she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. What is causing the Lord to allow this to happen? They turned their back on the Lord. What did he tell them in Deuteronomy 28, verse 36? You do that, you're going into captivity. So it's because of the rebellion. What must you do if you have been caught in rebellion? Repent. So verse 18 is to remind us that sin has consequences. It says, your ways and your doings have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness. Because it is bitter. Because it reaches to your heart. Make a note. Verse 18 means sin has consequences. Now verses 19 to 21. Oh my soul, my soul. Who's the my? This is Jeremiah. Can you imagine having to preach this to your people? Your beloved city. Your beloved temple. It's all going to be gone. Unless the people will repent. Does Jeremiah say, oh, maybe they'll repent? He knows better. So verse 19 says, oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried. How many times did Babylon invade, by the way? Three times. Three times. Three waves of captivity. Starting in 606 to 605 and going through 586 or so. For the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment. Jeremiah ends up fleeing down to Egypt, as he's told to do, so they continue to prophesy against those who think they can avoid the destruction by running to Egypt. Doesn't help them. Says, how long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? The trumpet signals war. He wants to know, how long away is it? How long do they have to repent and come to their senses? So let's go to verse 22. Verse 22 says, For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children, meaning foolish children. And they have no understanding. They're wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. So what's the problem? My people perish for lack of knowledge. Where is that? That's Hosea chapter 4. Let's turn over to Hosea chapter 4. Verse 
book of Proverbs defines a fool as one who says there he is no, is no God. Right, they're treating the Lord as if he does not exist, as if they have forgotten him. Yeah. This is, uh, that verse is just the opposite. I think Romans, uh, I forgot where it is, where it says, be innocent of evil, but be excellent in goodness. Yeah, and this is just the opposite. Yeah, just the opposite. And Isaiah warned, be, beware and woe when people call good evil and evil good, right? That's America. That's the world. Yeah, so Isaiah 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Does this mean they should have taken more algebra in high school? Absolutely. You got to keep reading. It goes at the end, says, because you have forgotten the law, the Torah of your God. Go to John 17. John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. You're right. Remember, Jeremiah 4.22, as you're turning to the other, says... They have not known me. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. If you know God and you know Messiah, then you have eternal life. So wouldn't it be nice if, if in the Bible there was a test of whether you know him or not? Let's go to 1 John 2. And many Bibles actually print over verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3. The test of knowing him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. So that's why we went to John, to John 17, 3 first. It's not just a head knowledge. It's not just a head knowledge. It's, this is how you know you have eternal life. And people say, no, no, Wayne, you're teaching salvation by works. No, I am not. <laughs> salvation is by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. But the Bible says, if you are saved, then you will obey God. Actually, salvation is by works. The work of the cross. The work of Messiah. The work of Messiah. Yep. First John 2, starting in verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. I've heard preacher after preacher read those words and say, this is wrong, just ignore those. How can you ignore the word of God? Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him, that is brought to maturity. By this we know that we are in him, he who says he abides in him, as in John chapter 15, over and over, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. The word foolish, back in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22. This word has a really 
deep and eye-opening meaning. It literally means one who despises. The word foolish. If you look up that word, this word in particular is one who despises God. Same as in Proverbs, one who says there is no God. What does it mean to despise, to not want, to reject? Let's go to Psalm 107. If you look at Brown Driver Briggs with that word. It says it's, almost, it's useless. It's a waste of time to instruct a person that the Bible calls a fool in that particular word. So yeah, it means it's a waste of time to try and instruct them because they, they, will not they will not hear it, right? Yeah, it says it's folly and useless to instruct them. So it's a person that you can't reach. It's folly and useless to instruct them because they don't want to know. Yes, it absolutely is a scary label to have attached to you. It means I don't want to know. In American jurisprudence, deliberate ignorance is equated to knowledge. If you deliberately keep yourself from knowing, that's proof in a court's eyes that you do know. Where are we going, Psalm? Psalm 107. With Jeremiah using that word, he knew they wouldn't repent. Yeah, he knows. That's what breaks his heart. To tell him, you can avoid this. All you have to do is repent, but you're not going to. How many of you have talked to family members and friends, and after they spit at your face, you get the idea they are not going to, to listen? Psalm 107, verse 17, fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Fools live a lifestyle of lawlessness, and therefore they get judged. And then they blame God for it and say, what did I do wrong? If you think they don't, just give us a couple chapters in Jeremiah. Looks like I've come to the end of my time, but let's finish this verse in its cross-references. Go to Proverbs 1.7. Proverbs 1.7. It goes right along with what Daniel said and what he quoted from the Brown Drivers Briggs, which is a Hebrew dictionary. And beyond a dictionary, it's a lexicon. It teaches you how the words came to be about, what their origins are, what languages they come from, original meanings. But Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So it's not that fools have not been taught. They haven't learned because they don't want to learn. They actively choose not to. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8. And that word instruction is actually discipline. Uh huh. Trying to teach them to repent and do better. They don't want to hear it. In other words, stiff necked, unrepentant. Proverbs 10, 8. The wise in heart will receive commands. 
but a prating fool will fall. So to receive commands, that's the instruction to repent, to do better, to turn around, to turn back to God. Proverbs 10, verse 21. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. Yeah. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel is wise. Why don't the fools want to be taught? Because they want to do whatever they want to do. Proverbs 14 verse 9. Just two more cross references and then I'll quit. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 9. Fools mock at sin. But among the upright, there is favor. What's it mean to mock at sin? To make fun of it. To enjoy it. To ridicule anyone who accuses them of sin. In Proverbs 15, verse 5. A fool despises his father's instruction. But he who receives, and that word is shomer, which means to guard, to protect, to keep. But he who receives correction is prudent. Where was that one? That's Proverbs chapter 15, verse 5. So one who receives correction, when you're told you're doing something wrong, you have two choices. You can change your way, that's wisdom. Or you can say, get out of my face. And that's foolish. Just remember to be like the Bereans. Take what you're taught to the scriptures. And with that, we will stop for today. We will pick up next time, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23.